Turn again to John chapter 1, if you would. Gospel of John, chapter 1. I greatly enjoy the music of uh, Michael Card. I don't know if you know much about contemporary Christian musicians. I commend Michael Card to you. If you don't, he's the Bible teacher of a contemporary Christian artist. He studies God's word, but instead of making a sermon, he makes a song out of it. Listen to him for a while, and you'll understand how all of the scripture points you to the Savior. But I didn't come to sell Michael Card tapes. I do want to tell you an interesting thing that he does, which I don't know of any other contemporary Christian musician who does this, though it's a common practice in classical music. And that is that Michael Card, at the the beginning of uh, every album, writes an overture an instrumental number that uh, a prelude to the album sort of. In that overture, as in musical overtures uh, in in general, he weaves together one line, one phrase of each of the songs in the album and he takes these lines and he puts them together and he makes this beautiful piece of music. Now when you listen to it, you don't realize at first that's what he's done. You just hear this beautiful uh, instrumental piece and then he starts uh, the other songs that he sings and plays. But after you have uh, listened to the album a while and know the songs and you go back and listen to the overture, you say, wow, that line right there, that's suggesting the song that's going to come at the end of the album or the middle of the album. And you begin to recognize the beauty of this, how at the beginning he hinted. He just gave you a taste of what was to come. an overture. That's what the Apostle John has done. These first 18 verses that we're going through these weeks, here at the beginning of our study, this is an overture. We call it a prologue in our study of a a writing, but it's an overture. John has taken some ideas, some themes that he's going to develop throughout the next 20 chapters, and he's woven them together into this little 18-verse song But if you study the whole gospel, you come and almost every word is packed. You say, oh, this is that, and this is that, and this is that. It's an overture that's suggesting what's to come. So it makes it a little hard to study if we study everything in vast detail. When we get to the end of verse 18, we will have finished the the gospel. Because the whole gospel is contained in these 18 verses. And yet he doesn't intend for us to unfold everything. He just is hinting, getting us thinking, introducing themes. And that's what's going on this morning. The themes this morning that John is introducing to us is the the fact that Jesus is the life and Jesus is the light. We're going to hear a lot more about that, a whole incident in chapter 11 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. He heals a blind man, and we read that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We're going to hear a lot more about this, but this morning the themes are introduced in kind of a mysterious way, a little strange way. So we'll take it for what it is in our verses this morning. Let me read verses 3 to 5, talking about the Word of God that we studied about last week. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There are two truths I want, want us to gain from this passage this morning. The first is real simple and straightforward, and that's this. Jesus 
made it all. Jesus made it all. Last week, Christ Jesus was introduced to us as the Word of God. The Word who lived in eternity with God. The Word who dwells in perfect unity with God. The Word who was God and is God. In other words, last week we talked about the relationship between God and the Word who we now understand to be God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we turn from that discussion of the relationship between the, the persons of the Godhead, we turn to the first of the great acts of God, the creation. What part did the Word, the Son, have in the creation? That's the question that we address. Well, the answer is our first point. Jesus made it all. That's what part he had. According to verse 3, the Word was God's agent in creation. John first says it positively, as straightforward as he can say it, through him... All things were made. Doesn't leave much question, does it? Jesus made, it, made everything. But in case we misunderstand, he says it negatively. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And when we go back to Genesis 1, we find some evidence of this. In fact, John's very language here compels us to compare the beginning of his gospel with the beginning of the Genesis account. When we read in Genesis 1.1... What do we have? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what do we have in John 1 here? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were created. The language is almost the same. In the beginning, God and everything created. Except here, how that happens is explained to us that it's the agency of the Word, the Son, our Savior. And what's that first description of the creative work of God back in Genesis? And God said, let there be light. The word of God created the light. God spoke and it was so. And John explains, you see right there, the word of God is the creative agent of God. And what is that word? Who is that word? The word is God the Son who was in the beginning with God who is God. In other words, Jesus made it all. Make no mistake about it. Every created thing is in view. Remember last week we discussed a little bit the difference between Greek verb tenses and English verb tenses. English verb tenses talk about time, past, present, future. Greek verb tenses talk more about action, what kind of action it is, rather than so much about the time. Well, the same thing comes up here. Here we read that all things were made. Without him, nothing's made. Those same, same word here. In those two cases, the Greek verb tense speaks of a specific action, an occurrence, an event. It's an aorist tense, if you care to know. It's talking about the creation. At that moment... Everything was made. All that was made at that moment, he made. But when you get down to the end of verse 3, and nothing was made that has been made, it uses a different tense. Here it's a perfect tense, and it has a completely different action. It's not a moment. It's not just continuing forever. It is stuff that happened in the past, but has continuing significance right up through the present. Very interesting Greek verb tense, the perfect tense. What he's saying is that 
in the past at that moment God created and everything that has been made as it has developed to today he has made. The New Testament Greek scholar Leon Morris explains the impact of this. What we see around us now, he says, did not come into existence apart from the word any more than what appeared on the first day of creation. Or, or G. Campbell Morgan says, originally, through him, all was caused to be. And without him, there has been no progress or development. You see, our text does not even leave the door open for this popular Christian cop-out that says, I think God started it, but then it just all kind of went on its own. No. Everything that was made at the beginning and everything that has progressively developed to this moment was made by the Word of God. Jesus made it all. Here's the picture. Here's the Bible's view of creation. There was God, eternally existing Father, Son, and Spirit. And there was nothing else. Nothing. And God, out of nothing created everything. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And everything was made out of nothing through Him. Oh, I know it sounds incomprehensible, but this is fact. On this basis, we begin our scientific inquiry. Speaking of which, I read an interesting article last week. It's an article by astronomer Hugh Ross, and he's discussing the significance of the recent discovery of what is being called exotic matter. This matter is completely different than the stuff we've previously known of, the stuff made of uh, protons and neutrons and electrons and other smaller particles. Nevertheless, this new exotic matter is not insignificant. Scientists believe it may make up 60 to 90 percent of the universe. Let me quote you some excerpts from Mr. Ross's article. He quotes a man named George Smoot, who's the University of California at Berkeley astronomer, leader of one of the breakthrough projects, who says, what we have found is evidence of the birth of the universe more respectable hypothesis today than any time in the last hundred years. He also quotes Godfrey Burbridge, the University of California at San Diego astronomer. A few days after the initial detection of exotic matter, he loudly complained in a radio interview and to newspaper reporters listen to this, that his colleagues were rushing off to join the first church of Jesus Christ of the Big Bang. You see, it's not just the impressive fact of the existence of a different kind of matter. The thing that's impressing everyone and causing people to think about God in this is the implication of that. Now, I had difficulty following all of the reasoning and understanding because I'm not a scientist by any means. But let me, let me quote some of the things that to Mr. Ross explains here. With considerable confidence, astronomers now affirm to the theologians 
and anyone else interested, listen to this statement. That the cause of the universe resides beyond, thus independent of, matter, energy, space, and time. What's so significant about that? Mr. Ross goes on, only the God of the Bible is revealed as a personal God who creates independently of the cosmos and its space-time limitation. What these scientists have seen is evidence that everything came from nothing. How can that be? There's only one place in the history of man, in all the religions of man, there's only one place where such a claim has ever been made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or in John 1, he was in the beginning with God and all things were created by him and without him was nothing created that has come into being or was created. Everything out of nothing. By the agency of the word, the Son of God. In other words, what our text says simply and straightforward, Jesus made it all. And we may have trouble following, understanding all what the astronomers have to tell us, but we can understand some implications of this. Let me share some implications for a moment before we move to the second point. First, if God the Word made the universe out of nothing, then He is not part of that universe or mixed up in that universe. God is distinct from His creation. You say, well, that's obvious. No, this isn't obvious to everyone. This is really important for you to hear because today the, the, the notions that swirl around our head when God is talked about is mostly talking about a kind of God who is the great spirit in all things. Some impersonal spirit reality that exists in every living tree or person or animal or something. No! God is distinct from his creation forever. He was before it and he still is distinct from it. He made it, but he's not mixed up in it. He's here. But he's not part of the creation. That other kind of God is, that's new age thinking. That's old paganism thinking. That's Native American spiritism. But that is not the God of the Bible, nor is it compatible with Christianity in any way. Don't let your desire to fit in with the thinking around you make a fool of you. The God of the Bible is different than the God that so many are talking of. God of the Bible is a personal creator. It's not the great spirit who's in everything. Second implication here is that if Jesus made it all, both originally and progressively as it's developed to this very day, then really everything is dependent upon him, isn't it? Without him, there's nothingness. There's no such thing as autonomy. There's no such thing as personal independence. There's no, there's no such thing as self-sufficiency. We have only total dependence. 
So if you're prizing your independence, as we certainly do, and especially in this part of the country, be careful. Be careful. You cannot maintain independence from Christ. In him, you live and move and have your being. You don't even have another heartbeat. You don't have another breath of air. One molecule doesn't move without Christ. There is no independence of him. He made it all. He sustains it all. Any attempt to maintain independence, he sees as defiance. Third implication, if Jesus made it all, then only his purposes matter. Whatever he created it for is what matters, and everything else really doesn't matter. You know, it seems nowadays every time you turn around, somebody is suing somebody because they infringed on their copyright or their trademark. You know, if you make a big poster for school, you can't put Mickey Mouse up there because Mickey Mouse is a registered trademark. And they sue you for putting Mickey Mouse on your poster. We can't copy songs that people wrote for us to praise God. We can't copy them and put them in the bulletin unless we pay royalties because we've come to recognize that if you create something, if you invent something, if you write something, you own it. You have all the rights to it. And therefore, if, you, if your rights are not satisfied and if you are not paid for the use of it, people are stealing from you. And I say that just so that we'll understand the implications here of the fact that Jesus made everything. That means that on the back of every plot of dirt, on the back of every breath of air, on the back of every tree that we might cut up for, for lumber to build our house, on the back of every child we bring into the world, on the back of every piece of matter in the universe, of every ounce of energy in the universe, there ought to be stamped Copyright, Jesus Christ, all rights reserved. You do not have the right to take anything. Not your life, not your time, not your energy. Not one piece of dirt. Not one breath of air. Not the least measure of energy, the least moment of time. You have not the right to take anything. And use it for your purposes instead of God's purposes. If you do, you steal from God. Everything you have is only entrusted to you for your use to bring honor to him. He made it. He owns it. Jesus made it all. There's a second truth here that follows on in verse 4 and 5. Let me read verse 4 and 5 again. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, there are a lot of things going on here, but let's reduce it down to one truth that we can remember. The witness of Jesus still shines in your soul. So where'd you get that? Let me reason with me a moment. The activity of the word of God revealed to us here is not just bringing creation into existence. He made it and that was there. 
but it's the creation of life itself. Now, in our scientific quest, perhaps this is the stickiest point. You know, it's one thing to postulate pieces of planets flying off and being captured in orbits and cooling and forming the crust and what we see and think, well, maybe somehow, some way. But when we begin to think about the emergence of life in there, we have an unfathomable hurdle. Research scientist Walter T. Brown writes, I quote, the simplest conceivable form of life should have at least 600 different protein molecules. The mathematical probability that just one protein molecule could form by the chance arrangement of the proper sequence of amino acids the probability of that is 1 in, listen to this number, 10 to the 450th power. Now he goes on, the magnitude of the number 10 to the 450th power can be appreciated by realizing that the visible universe is only 10 to the 28th power inches in diameter. The probability of life appearing by chance, not 10 to the 28th, 10 to the 450th power. Another writer explains, no matter how large the environment one considers, life cannot have had a random beginning. Troops of monkeys thundering away at random on typewriters could not produce the works of Shakespeare for the practical reason that the whole observable universe is not large enough to contain the necessary monkey hordes or the necessary typewriters or the necessary wastebaskets for all of their failed efforts. It just isn't big enough. Another writer says that the mathematical impossibility is so great as to be indistinguishable from a miracle. Or our text simply explains in him was life. Jesus is the life giver. Oh, but it doesn't end there for us humans. The story goes even further. Here mankind is singled out, not only from the inanimate creation around us, but also distinguished from plants and animals with which we share so many common traits. Verse 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Here's a reference to the uniqueness of human life in the universe. The fact that God has endowed us with a God consciousness which reflects his image in us. By giving us that capacity to know him, God has revealed himself to us. He has left his testimony indelibly stamped in our hearts. G. Campbell Morgan explains it this way. He says, life everywhere, superabundant life, life infinite, mysterious, but in man, life became light. Man, as distinguished from everything beneath him in the earthly creation, had this element of light. Man is the first and the only one 
being created who understands. Understands. Who can look back in the face of God and commune with him. The witness of the word who created us is light in our souls. Oh, this doesn't mean that we live such an enlightened life by any means, because we deny that light. We turn from that light. We hate that God consciousness because then it accuses us every time we're not communing with our Creator, but in fact pursuing our own goals. Indeed, we run from exposure by the light of God. That's the truth of verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Actually, it's worse than it didn't understand it. Our alternative reading that you find in your margin or at the bottom of the page is better here. The light, the, the darkness did not overcome it. Darkness doesn't try to understand light. Darkness threatens to snuff out light. And that's what we tend to do too. God has caused his light to shine in our souls, but the darkness constantly wars against it. The Apostle Paul explains the very same thing in Romans chapter 1. Let me read a little bit. He talks about the wrath of God coming from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Why? They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Or as John says, in Jesus was life and the life was the light of mankind, of humans. And that light, even to this day, shines. Except that the darkness fights it all the time and tries to quench it and put it out, though it's not able to do so. In other words, the witness of Jesus still lights our souls. So what? See, I don't even understand what you're talking about. What does it mean to me? Well, first, as the passage in Romans says, this is a great warning to us. It leaves us without excuse. You know, we love to pass the buck. And one of our best defenses when we're accused of something is, I didn't know. And we want to do that with God, too. We want to say, oh, oh, God, I didn't know about you. I didn't, I didn't know that's what you wanted. But God says, yes, you do know. 
You know enough to be culpable. You know enough to be accountable. You are without excuse if you reject me. For I have planted in the very life of your soul the witness of Jesus that says there is light. So this morning I have to warn you about the danger of turning away from the light of the knowledge of God. You can't play games with God, especially you kids, I tell you. Because as you grow and go through school, you begin to think that you're smart enough that you can say, I don't believe God even exists. I don't even think you can understand anything. And God says, listen, I have made it plain that I exist. And I hold you accountable for what I know you know. And you say, I don't know it. God says, yes, you do know. And I know what you know, and I'm holding you accountable. You are without excuse. Be careful. Be careful that we don't try to snuff out the light. That's the first thing we learn from this. The second thing is that it points us to the introduction of Jesus that this gospel presents. You know, when you really think about it, what we've discussed here in the second point, that the, te the testimony, the witness of Jesus shines in our souls, and yet the darkness fights against it, and we, it, when you think about it, that leaves us in a terrible predicament. We know enough to be accountable, and yet we love the darkness, and we don't want God to expose us, and so we're fighting against the darkness, and yet God is holding us accountable because he knows we know something. And we say, wow, this is life in the shadows here. This is life like on the north side of my house. You know, the moss just grows thicker and the mold gets worse. Oh, but remember here, John is writing an overture. He's introducing themes. And the theme he's introducing here that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the perfect radiance of the Father who comes to transform us, to change that darkness that we love and make us children of light, to make us so radically transformed that people will say of us, that God says of us, you are the light of the world. Just like it, Jesus says, he is the light of the world. So this morning, if you're wandering in the darkness of doubt and sin and playing games with God, being estranged from God, I tell you this morning, that ache that you feel in your soul sometimes when you're all alone. That's the witness of Jesus the light saying, you fool, I made you for better than this. What are you doing wandering around in the darkness? What are you doing living like a slug in the dark slime? I made you for better than this. And so that today I call you to come to the light, to embrace the Lord Jesus, to look to him. Yes, he's going to take the pure light of his person. He's going to do laser surgery on your soul to remove the defilement, to make you new, to give you back life so that you'll understand the fellowship of walking in the light and communion with God. This testimony of Jesus that shines in our soul 
is hope. Jesus made it all. And he won't let us forget it. Well, in conclusion, I was thinking about Daniel Defoe's classic novel, Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe was stranded on a deserted island. Life was going on pretty fine, and one day he discovered in the sand on the beach a human footprint. And what did he do? He was terrified. He said, oh, wow, it's a good thing I have my stuff put away. And he ran back and he hid. And he got, his mind played tricks on him, and he got so fright, frightful and so afraid, the cannibals are going to come, they're going to eat me. And he went and hid in his place for days. But as you read the story, you find out that, in fact, the footprints led him to Friday, who became his right-hand man. The footprint in the sand was not bad news, it was the best news he had. Because Jesus made it all, whether we stand and look at the heavens at night or whether we look around us at the mountains and the trees and the ocean or whether we look inside our own experience and our own heart and our relationships, but no matter where we look, we see the footprint of the living word. And how do we respond? We're terrified. Oh, what's he going to do? Oh, I want to keep it. I didn't see that. Pretend I didn't see it. We want to hide. We want to run. Not let him find us. Deny that there is any such thing. There's no creator. No, I don't believe this. There's no creator. You can't know him if there is one. And the darkness rolls in to quench the light. But John would announce to us, and he's going to announce in the book, and I announced to you this morning, that God is not pleased. It's, he cares too much to leave us living, cowering in the darkness for what it might mean to meet him. And he sent his son, the perfect radiance of the Father's glory, who comes to give us life and light. And so this morning I call you to Jesus again. You say, oh, I know Jesus. I call you to know him more. To have him lighten your soul and enliven your soul and to cast out the darkness and the deadness because you're a child of light, not a child of darkness. Because you're alive, not dead. Because you are human, a man, a woman, not a slug or an ant. Come to the light. Come to the life. Receive Jesus. This is the good news. Amen. Father, I pray that no matter how many times we've heard that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is life eternal for us, I pray, Lord, that you would cause that truth to register in our hearts this morning in a deeper, more profound way than it ever has before. Lord, we so easily put you in a little box that we can haul out on Sunday. Treat you as if you're no better than a wooden idol like somebody 
might have in some far-off primitive tribe. Oh God, help us to see you as who you are, Father and Son and Spirit, the true light, all life, the creator, the goal of everything, the owner of everything. May we flee to you, Lord, by your grace, not away from you. Bless now our fellowship and keep us through this day. May it be a day of rest and refreshment. May it be a day that we meditate on you and your word. Gather us again, Lord, tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.